to our next episode on our podcast, iBuzz, produced by Animal Concepts. My name is Sabrina Brando, and I'm the founder of Animal Concepts, and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in other goals such as conservation, education, and research. Today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Augusto Vitale, who is an ethologist studying animal behavior, animal welfare, on a wide variety of species with a focus on primates at the Instituto Superiore di Sanità in Rome, Italy. Welcome, Augusto. Hello, hello, Sabrina. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Yes, very much looking forward. And we always like to start the podcast with a short story of how you connected Uh with animals or maybe you had a companion animal. So please share with some of your early stories. Well, I must admit I wasn't the kind of guy who goes around with, uh, uh, you know, frogs in the pockets or going around <laughs> looking for bugs in the, in the, in the in forest or things like that. I wasn't very much into animals when I was uh, a kid, so I didn't have this passion. But um, when I finished high school, I was vaguely interested in biology, although I didn't know what I actually mean. I thought, well, probably biology is something to do with lab. I don't want to be in the laboratory, what I'm going to do, so big dilemma. And then I don't know, I don't remember how if someone gave it to me or I found it, I read Conor Lawrence, uh, King Solomon, uh, read that summer. And, uh, and then really, uh, you know, it was a sort of a moment because, oh, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm interested in. I would like to work on the, uh, animal behavior. That's fascinating. And uh, so the, the, the beginning was actually a book, a Lawrence book. And from then I started to get interested in animal behavior. And uh, my parents were very supportive. And I thought, well, uh, what's going to go on next? We are going to biological science study, but how can I study animal behavior? And then again, by chance, I uh, look at a newspaper or something. There was a photograph of Lawrence with Professor uh, Danilo Bainardi from the University of Parma, together talking. And I said, well, I'm going to Parma then. And, and went to Parma, University of Parma, and uh, there I met Professor Bainardi, who was the most important ethologist at that time. And there it started, let's say. That was the beginning. Yep. Never look back. Great. <laughs> yes, and never look back. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. Like talking to so many people on the yeah, podcast, it's yeah. always really interesting to hear uh, how people came into the field. Like, you know, a book, like knowing something exactly. about yeah. not knowing exactly, and then a book inspires us. Or, yeah, and yeah. then how do I get there? Or who should I, you know, work with? Or who could I be working with? And then it's a photograph. And so these things come on our absolutely, path. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And at the books, same time... Books for me are always been... Every time I turn my direction in terms of what I want to study or have a new feeling about it, new awareness was always through a book. Some people read in a book that say, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. That totally resonates with me. Mm. I get, yeah, I, I love reading books as well. And it's such a great uh, point also, especially for people who are listening, who still want to get into the field or mm. maybe want to pivot, yeah. is to, of course, read widely, you know, research who exactly. are in the field doing what you want to do and then finding out how you can connect with those people. That's yeah. very, very important, you know, because uh, I'm teaching utology, a part of a teaching utology at university. And what I always say to students is that, especially for etology, etology is not just a set, a, a series of examples what animals do. Etology, a history of ideas. History of ideas of people with great ideas who change our way we understand or try to understand animals. And so the historical context, the history of ethology is so important, so vital to understand. So, you know, animals are not, what we know about animal, what we study about animal is not just in a bubble. It comes from a story, comes from a history, goes to a certain direction, then it directs a change. So the historical context and the history of idea is one of the things that makes ethology so fascinating. Excellent. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit yeah. further. Because of course, you know, just like other topics, sometimes yeah. you know, when I speak about environmental enrichment, yeah. I go back to Yerkes in the in the 20s, yeah. you know, yeah. and then and then Heidegger and Hall Markowitz, yeah. there's this whole history. So take us a little bit through some of these key you know, ideas and changes that we've seen in ethology. That would be fascinating. Well, of course, there are so many. What, what I can you know, I adore talk about myself. I'm not such an egomaniac person, so that's very good for me. But, um, uh, well, one of the things that really struck me at a certain point is that uh, uh, reading a, a philosopher called Donna Haraway. Donna Haraway wrote that biology is not the search for truth. There's no truth to be searched for. It's, it's just about uh, telling stories. Telling stories about animals is not diminishing what the scientific value of that story is. But actually, uh, if we don't understand animals, that's okay, you know, that's okay. And I remember exactly when that's clicking my brain. I was, uh, I did my PhD in Scotland and I had a great fortune to do my PhD with a Nicotinbergen student, Ian Patterson. And, uh, and I was sitting there in a common room, we had ch chatting, in, and people were discussing about it is correct or not to use the term optimality, optimal behavior, optimal, uh, you know, foraging. That was the time that was, and discussing what the, the best way to describe the best word. And then all of a sudden I was looking at it and said, is it for real? I mean, animals have been doing the same stuff forever. They will, and they don't care if we call it optimal or not. So what is the point of all this? And I got into a big crisis because I said, what is the point of all this? We have so detached from what the animals do. We call the what the animals do in a certain way, but we're not even sure if we are even close of what they do and why they do it. So I was really desperate. And Donna Haraway saved me from that because saying that, you know, is a storytelling, is a very good storytelling, the storytelling, that saved me. So let's look for very good stories about animals. Some can be more real than others, but it doesn't matter if we do it in a proper scientific way. Of course, we have to use a scientific paradigm to study animals, but, you know, uh, and we primates, that's even more true. And 
Donna Hathaway rightly so said, primatology is a battlefield. It's a battlefield where vision of life, uh, and love, and, and everything gets together because for primatologists put their point of view into what they observe in animals, it's a very, very big temptations. You know, I'm reading an absolutely fantastic book that I've been looking for a long time by one of my heroes called Shirley Strong, called Almost Human, Studying the Boots. And she completely revolutionized the idea, the classical idea of baboon society, which was uh, created by male, white, American, observers in which the male was the center of the society and they were just observing the males so the males were the center of society the males were fighting against other males and the females were just uh, you know looking for food for the babies raising babies you know? suspiciously close to a description of a patriarchal family you know in the, in the western world and she goes there and she starts to look at females they said that's completely different females are the center and she came back and of course I worked for her, refused by the male primatology. But that's to tell you that the way we interpret things, especially with primates, a good study case, depends very much on our vision of the world. And this is not, you know, it's not a bad thing. You know, it's, uh, we don't have to uh, run after objectivity because objectivity really is another way to call subjectivity when we study animals. Excellent. I really enjoyed hearing all this. And I really love uh, reading Donna Haraway as well. I yeah. think her work is, is remarkable. So could you expand a little bit about mm -hmm. how these sorts of ideas or these sorts of like, okay, so how am I going to then, as a researcher, as an ethologist, as somebody interested in behavior and welfare, explore trying okay. to understand what animals are experiencing or what yeah. are, is part of their life? Yeah, well, uh, it uh, pushed me to uh, look for collaboration for people outside biology, and especially philosophers. Uh, I have a very, a very, very good friend of mine who's uh, work on animal ethics. He was a philosopher, and he helped me to look at uh, behavior of the animals and why we study behavior, what is important in, in, a, in a different way. And of course, that was uh, parallel and uh, into my interest in animal experiments. Now, the, the interest in animal experiments was this. When I uh, entered the Institute of Superior Sanita, I wanted to study primates, and I was given the possibility to form a colony of common, well, a colony of primates, so which, which primates would like to study, and I decided to study common marmosets, you know, Calitex yacros, and I did it for three reasons. The first one, because the, the, the space I was allocated was enough to have uh, families. You know, I couldn't have a bigger primate because there was no simple space in the Institute in the, you know, in the, for husbandry reasons. Second uh, reason was that there was a good uh, community of uh, researchers study on the social behavior that I was interested in, in primates and social system and social cooperation and things like that, altruism and barbers that were excellent. And they became more and more and more important for that. And third, because there was a breeding center of common barbers just outside Rome, I could get the animals in. Uh, then my starting point was, okay, you know, I studied behavior of these animals. So then all of a sudden, uh, and at that time, uh, I wasn't interested in animal experiments. I wasn't into that. I didn't want to really hear about it. I was scared about it. I was, you know, 
it wasn't the thing I wanted to get involved in because I thought it was scary away and I didn't want to know. But then I decided that, well, this is a very hypocritical position because I'm surrounded by friends and colleagues who do animal research for biomedical reasons and they use mice and rats, even primates, and uh, I keep animals in a cage. So that's comes with responsibility. Why? Why should I be able, we should be allowed to keep animals in a cage, you know, and make them live their life in captivity. And so I started to get interested in the uh, animal experimentation. The, why is it done? Uh, what is the need? Uh, and all the different aspects uh, around animal experimentation. So uh, the philosophical issues, scientific issue, uh, very much uh, the legislative issues, which in a way, uh, parallel to my interest of what goes around science, you know, uh, people, colleagues and friends around here, they, they know very much and they tell me that I'm not a very good uh, data collector. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not good with numbers. And, uh, I'm just very, I'm just more interested in what goes around data collection, interpretation, why we ask us some questions and things like that. And, then, and that's really helpful for animal experimentation, which is such a complex uh, thing that needs uh, a multifactorial approach. Yes, so, okay, so let's, let's uh, delve a little bit into yeah. why do people say you're not a very good data collector? What, what, is that, what does that relate to? Is that because <laughs> you stay outside of what is more conform or what is more expected in the way that we ought to be doing research? Because my, because my, mind, my mind wandered away. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have the you know attentional span of a barber at 50 minutes and then I think about something else. Instead, a very good uh, uh, researcher, like my colleagues and my friend, they can stay in there for hours and people collecting data. I just got to this. I think about something else all of a sudden, so I'm not very good at it. But, but I can help and I can, of course, advice on what it could be interesting, what it could be not, but uh, I'm not very good in statistics and things like that. So, but, uh, you know, I'm afraid I, I could say I'm a good supervisor, but then they let the others do the, the dirty job. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, and this is, of course, pointing to the importance of, again, like you mentioned, collaboration. We yeah. can't, you know, I, I work with stati professional statisticians. It's a job, exactly. right? Exactly, yes, Just absolutely. An yeah. animal... Uh, care professional is a specific job, you know, being a, a researcher can mean lots of different jobs because you can research in many different ways Absolutely. and we all yeah. have different expertise, right? Yeah. So, okay. And, and also knowing, like you say, really, you know, what are my strengths? You know, my yeah. strengths are looking yeah. at the bigger picture, asking questions about how we do things and why, exactly. rather than maybe somebody else's focus is really good at staying hours Absolutely. and hours. In observing, Absolutely. and that's good, right? Absolutely. Knowing what yeah. are your skills and, and your talents that really Correct. help you choosing also what is the most enjoyable, best job for you contributing in this field. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit in your collaborative research? You've done work with primates uh, and, and, and also on specific topics like personality or enrichment. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit what you studied and, and why? Yes, we did several things with my collaborator and, 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 and students. And uh, one part of the job was very much into the etology of marmosets. And we did very fun work. We, we work on uh, 
Uh, one that I really enjoyed was uh, we look at the social transmission of, uh, of uh, food preference and more than food preference, acceptance of new food. We found out that uh, uh, sociality helped very much these animals to uh, acquire new food in their diet. That was the, of the, one of the job we did. And then we expand this because we noticed a certain point when uh, young, naive marmosets, they have a new food. Uh, they eat it, but they eat more and more if they see other experienced adults eating it. And when they are all together, they pick up the food from the mouth of the adults, although they have foods there. And that structures are really very interesting. And, uh, and, and that was an, uh, an idea that was that uh, uh, that was an excuse to do very strong bond within the family. Barbers are famous because they have very strong bond within the family. So we started to do work about uh, uh, communication, about vocal communication, about the quality of food, and they call each other when there's a good food. And then uh, I enter that bunch of people working with altruism and cooperation. Uh, with Marcos, it is great. It's spe specifically people in the, uh, Switzerland, like Judith Burkhardt, who is very good at these things. And, uh, and also we did some stuff about the evolution of altruism in Marmoset and the reciprocal uh, behavior like grooming, exchanging grooming. We did some stuff on that, on that area. Parallel to that, we did the study of the environmental enrichment. Okay, before, and, before yeah. we jump into the original one, tell yeah. us more about, you know, what is altruism? Right. In one way, you know, we perhaps have heard about it in humans. So how do yes. we know they're in, in other animals? Tell us okay. more about altruism, please. Well, uh, altruism is a fascinating topic. Uh, uh, let's say that uh, the, the seminal uh, idea of the existence of uh, altruism was by Hamilton in the 60s with, uh, with uh, social insects. He discovered that, uh, you know, the evolution of uh, altruism was possible if there was uh, a certain uh, genetic relations between the two individuals, you know. Uh, and that was uh, the solution of a paradox because even Darwin thought the altruism was a problem because altruism is you do something to someone else and you get disadvantage out of it. You know, your disadvantages in helping someone else. And that goes against what uh, natural selection is about. You know, you're supposed to take care of your own fitness and uh, uh, go on with your own, you know, favor yourself to have more, more uh, descendants. But uh, there are some cases in which, uh, you know, helping someone who is related to you actually uh, help you out to, to put forward, to push forward your genome. And that was the big Hamilton idea with key selection. Uh, from then on, uh, some other ideas came out. For example, uh, reciprocal altruism. That happens when uh, two animals exchange favors. They're not, uh, they could be related, but also not. And there is a difference in time. I do a favor to you today, and you will, re, re, uh, you know, re, recharge, re change the favor tomorrow or another day. 
Uh, and so all different kinds of ways the animal uh, help each other. There's a cooperation, of course, when different individuals get together to have a common gain. For example, uh, a pride of Leoness uh, hunting uh, a buffalo or hunting a gazelle. They work together because at the end they share their prey. So there are different ways in which animals can help each other. Uh, you know, altruism and cooperation is a big umbrella underneath. There is a lot of uh, different behaviors. Um, what is striking about uh, uh, marmosets, and this is a topic I don't work anymore, but I've been in the past, but I've been following what's happening, is that uh, uh, nobody is altruistic as far as we know, potentially as humans. Humans are, can be really sophisticated the way they cooperate and they're altruistic. But marmosets um, uh, share with humans a characteristic the other primates don't have, even chimpanzees, which is uh, uh, common parental care. Marmoset care for the baby, each member of the family care directly for the babies. Uh, father, mother, uh, older brother, older sister, they carry them, they feed them, and that's the only primates known to do this constantly, okay? The other primates who do this constantly are humans. So why, that's why people like Karen Rescheid, Jody Gooden believe that common parental care is the key to the evolution of cooperation in humans. And the only primate that can tell, the, the best primate that can tell us something about it is the common virus, because they share with humans this characteristic of common parental care. That's making absolutely fascinating animals. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. That is really, it's also really important to, you know, like you give these various explanations and, you know, how people are thinking as well as, you know, the opposing views, because as, yeah. as with every sort of research, you know, it is important to, also in personality research, for yeah. example, some people or study groups think it's like this and other groups think it's different. And, you know, to continue all these different parallels, if you like, and then and, and presenting those different views as well. Yeah. So that, you know, it, it continues to be that sort of research, you know, that really is informed, that is critical, that keeps evolving, like you say, you know, new ideas that either are replaced. So it's, it's very good to hear yes. all those, those sorts of backgrounds. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, uh, if I can expand as well, of course, you mentioned the work on personality. Personality has a lot to do with it. And uh, this is a work that's been carried out by my ex-students and collaborator, uh, Bianca de Filippis, and her students now, that have been doing work on that with the Marmoset. And the, the fact is that uh, considering the, uh, the individual, you know, within a family, and not considering just a member of a species does things that the species does, but he has his own way of doing. Each marmoset has his own way to be a marmoset, although he's a marmoset, so he will help. He will dig holes to find the gum to eat, but it is own way. And this, of course, has been, you know, the study of personality has blossomed now, even to the, to the absurd and every single animal that has a personality. Well, but let's say marmoset definitely do. And of course, that is linked to the fact of the welfare, especially use of enrichment, go, go there. But uh, you have to look at that individual and what that individual character is in order to really be able to offer what that individual needs. 
uh, in captivity because you know he's at your mercy let's say <laughs> you know you provide the environment from the animal and you are responsible to understand what's the best thing for that individual is a marmoset but is that all marmoset yes excellent so one of the responsibilities that we have when we care for animals in human care or captivity um, is to create environments where we try to facilitate, you know, their opportunities for choice, control, yeah, agency, yeah, those sorts of things, yeah, so that yeah. we can really try and promote them, yeah. you know, being the agents of their life in the best yeah. way for them. Yeah. yeah, I heard a fantastic talk on this podcast about it. Absolutely great people working on that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For us working in bio, biomedical. Uh, community, the, the thing is also too, but now this change, this is much better now, because before there was a sort of a resistance from researchers to say, well, you know, if you provide enrichment, you, you create variability in animals, and then what kind, kind of data we're going to have, and things like that. Uh, uh, but now this has changed. Apart the fact that from the, the legislative point of view, now it's mandatory to provide enrichment to animals in experiments. It's mandatory, it's not just a suggestion anymore. It's mandatory, you have to. But then now the message we managed to pass is that animals who have a good, reasonably good psychological life in a lab, they provide with good data. Animals who are unhappy, who are bored, who are frustrated, who are stressed, they uh, offer data who are not valid whatsoever. So is in the common interest of both animals and the researcher to have animals who are in an at least at least decent state of welfare at least yes and that's a very important point and we're going to talk more about animals in research yeah. so on this podcast we talk about all kinds of topics and especially also shining lights on animals that are often not visible and so this is very important to keep talking about like you say how do we continue to, you know, change the way that we, yeah. you know, and hopefully, ultimately, we hope, you know, animals never are going to be used in testing ever. But, you know, for example, I have asthma and allergies and yeah. in hospital, you know, if it wasn't for testing on animals, I wouldn't be alive today. So it's yeah. very important to acknowledge yeah. that, to bring gratitude to that. And, and take that as, you know, also, how do we do the best or they are right now Absolutely. right yeah. yeah and before we go talking See. a little bit more about that could you tell us a little bit also about the research that you've done on enrichment and what were some of the findings or also importantly how some of these findings been used now or are they being used now yes well one of the things that we find out with our new work with enrichment that what we think is good for the animals that's necessarily true <laughs> Marbus had talked to them a lot about it because we always think about using a rich but you know, let's see what they do in nature. So we give them something in a cage which uh, remind them uh, that they are marmosets and they're going to use it. Uh, sometimes not really because these animals have been generation and generation in, in captivity and some of the things uh, they just forgot about it, they don't use it anymore. For example, uh, we use we did a lot of research on lot of research. We did substantial amount of work on the use of puzzle feeders. You know, uh, 
thinking, well, you know, primates in, in nature spend a lot of time processing and searching, processing for food. And so uh, if we give them something to do, they will be very, very happy and it will enrich their time. And, blah, blah, blah. and we put the basal feeder and, they, and we had five families and all the families, they were, they were uh, interested in using the basal feeder when they were fed, when they already had their belly full and they have you know, the little plates with a little food prepared, all cut properly and things. And then, well, let's do, do some work now they have free time. So they didn't rush towards the puzzle feeder and forget about the bowl with the prepared food. It's still like that. Now, that means that uh, the use of the puzzle feeder was not so effective. It was a choice they could do. But at that time, you have to balance the fact that you have technicians who have to prepare the puzzle feeder and clean it and cut the food to put into the puzzle feeder. And you can't honestly ask technicians to spend hours on the enrichment the animal are just occasionally gonna use. You have to think also this time, we talk about uh, well-being also of, of technician workers, but you can't ask it to do things that are uh, a little bit marginal to the welfare of the animals. Um, the other thing is that um, we did a study using the same kind of enrichment, different kind of enrichment on different colonies of marmoset. One in our institution, one in a zoo, and one in another uh, medical center in Scotland. And uh, the same enrichment used completely different by the different colonies. That told us that when using enrichment, you have to know what the story of that colony is, what used for, so animals will be more stimulated because they have experimental history. Uh, what the composition of the family, if there are young uh, babies or not, and things like that, because uh, you know enrichment will work in relation to what the animal expect, what the animal need, and each colony has its own history. So, uh, if you use a puzzle feeder in Edinburgh, you know we have the same result in Verona, in the north of Italy, where it's a zoo, or in Rome, with the institute. So. You know, it's not just to throw stuff into the throw stuff into the cage because you think that's what a marmoset a marmoset actually need. So thank you for that. I think it's really interesting, you know, for us to think about like what are the effects of breeding on the animals, and yeah. you, know, you already talked about the importance of if we are going to use animals in experiments. Then you know, in what way are they they the most you know. Yeah the best, the most salient model for that, yeah, yeah, that right? Yeah. So the effects of breeding on long-term on Absolutely. captivity. Yeah. And the other things for me that came to mind is also how we habituate the animals, right? Like there's a lot of research on um, contra-free loading, you know, when animals are working for their food, preferring Same. it over the bowl. And so, you know, and, and looking then, you know, in what ways are we habituating animals, in what ways are we actually yeah. maybe doing the disservice of, you know, I don't know, laziness if, but you know, there's all these things to think about, right? We, we don't want to assume anything. We don't want to attribute necessarily, but it's thinking about, okay, so what happens to the animals or to behavior if yeah. we yeah. behave like yeah. this or that? So like you say, it's important that we are not adding more work, you know, to the people yeah. who are caring for the animals. Absolutely. And, but it might be actually the way that we have set it up that is now the result of them not using it, right? So absolutely, it's absolutely. This is extremely, extremely interesting. One of the things I want to go into now together again with uh, 
someone who is an expert on the animal welfare enrichment in, in, a, in a biopark in, in a park in Verona and my friend the philosopher is to try to reason about what is natural behavior what is unnatural behavior what is an abnormal behavior you know uh, is it actually natural behavior the model we have to look at to provide uh, proper captive life for our animals and what is natural and what is not natural you know all these things i would like also to one of my next let's say uh, idea to get into to write something is about is about this try to understand about these terms and what it actually means uh, because again probably we think it's natural for the animal but it's not natural for the marbles it has been in the cage for generations and so probably we do a disservice as you said um, the other thing that stuck to my mind when we were talking about uh, my, of course, my uh, experience with primates, and especially now is with primates using neuroscientific studies, which is the most invasive uh, use of them, okay, the use that is more creating problems. Uh, in that case, is absolutely essential the personal relationship between that individual and the researcher. There is a mutual trust. The animal will work if he trusts the researcher he works with. If not, there's no way. Uh, that's something that I really saw happening in a good lab when this has happened because, again, Sabrina, the work with uh, animal researchers is like any other job. They are the good ones, then they are the bad ones. Uh, the one they do the proper job, the one they do the job good enough, but we are not for the good enough thing. So, of course, there are situations which is less optimal, but a situation which is very good. Yes, and I think here, so it's also really interesting for me. I'm very interested in language. I'm very interested in, you know, for many years now, when, when I get emails about, oh, we have some animals who are not behaving, right? So part of it is excellent. how we yeah, excellent. speak yeah. about animals. And the other yeah. one is, of course, the words. And, and we know how language shapes the brain shapes our actions right and so this obviously the animals are behaving they're just not behaving the way we would like them maybe to behave yeah. and you know and of course you know the the natural behavior debate by dr yeah. Heather browning there are some papers yeah. around that right yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly familiar with. Yeah, yeah so and also i i would love that you're going to explore this more because of course you know abnormal we or you know we we talk about what falls within the norm of what we exactly, know exactly. rather than but of course it's not we also say it's abnormal right but really it's not abnormal if you exactly. are in an environment exactly. where yeah, things yeah. are not good for you it's yeah. actually really normal that you yeah, really yeah. start to develop behaviors that are not good for you perhaps and you see that, that that's all you said is great and it goes back right from the beginning of our our, our chat because it's go back to the question, uh, do we understand what we see or we are just creating the animals we observe? Yes. And how we can fill that gap of uh, ignorance. Yes. Uh, the thing is that when you talk to animals in experiments, if we don't do something to fill that gap of ignorance, we risk to create discomfort to animals, you know? Because one thing is you go to the savannah and look at baboons and you don't understand what's going on. Baboons keep going, doing what they're doing and you don't care. If you sit there, you don't understand what's going on. But if you go in a lab, you have a rat, a mice, or even an octopus or a macaque, 
and you don't understand what's going on, and you don't make an effort to understand what's going on, is the risk that the animal will suffer. So absolutely, and I think you know, obviously, talking about the well-being of people who care for for these animals, whether it's in a zoo or aquarium yes. or in a research facility, is super important. Yeah. But for a different podcast, uh, because that's a whole topic in itself that needs uh, that space for it. Yeah. At the same time, also going back to language, it's very interesting. Like we talk about, you know, obviously we have to have words to speak about whether it's altruism or reciprocity. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know, yesterday I have like this Google alerts for all kinds of different articles that come in and that I want to stay up to date. And yesterday I was reading through the list and at some point again, it, I thought, it's like we're not talking about living beings, about, you know, the natural world, right, and other right. creations, because we use all these words like even, you know, having the label an animal technician is actually <laughs> such an abstract, you know, we have also in the zoo world, we talk about collection okay. and in the industry, it's such a removal from and, and again there you know I love those that space where where you talk about ignorance or you know the exploration of how does the way that we frame things yeah, and think yeah. about things really you know of course it's it has to do also with protection it has to do with lots of different things but actually for us to be more caring more respectful yeah, more yeah. loving uh, more, you know, love is, is really never really talked about in the workspace in that sense. But if it is about our common purpose of care, then, you know, we, ha we have to have a different language, right? Absolutely. Also research. Absolutely. So anyway, that's also part for another podcast. Yeah. Let's go back to, we, I would love to hear more from you on, you know, your work on EU guidelines, care yeah. and well-being of the animals and different species. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yes, that, that's a very important point, important part of my work. Well, I, I function as a, a general secretary of the European Federation of for Primatologists, which is a collection of uh, uh, different members of different states uh, in terms of uh, societies of group of interest. And the, the, the EFP, which I'm saying that I managed, I, I managed, if I can say, to uh, associate the EFP uh, together with uh, at the European Commission as what is called the group of interest. The group of interest is a group uh, association, uh, group of people, uh, whatever, they have been officially consulted by European Commission uh, for their opinion when a certain matter uh, comes to be discussed. In this case is uh, legislation or use of uh, animals, especially for primates. So every time there is a, a discussion to be done about the use of primates uh, in research, uh, FB get cons officially consulted. Um, now we have a law, of course, we have the European Directive of the Protection of Animals using the scientific procedure in the Europe, which is a very good law. It's the best law in the world, I think, in terms of caring for the animals. It's now in the process of being re-framed, uh, re, uh, rewritten, but it's a very good law. And uh, there is a special part of privates. Privates are particularly uh, take care of the law. They have a special uh, uh, provision for use privates. 
And in uh, every time there was been a discussion about uh, you know how to implement the use of primates following the law, there have been discussion in Bruxelles uh, asking for the FP to do it. For example, uh, one of the things we uh, we were influential about is that uh, you have to ask permission to use animals in research. You know, and you have to use permission to use animal research anytime you do something to the animal. We create discomfort. You know, and the level of discomfort can be from very mild up to severe. And uh, we actually worked actively as FP with the European Commission to describe all the procedures that could even uh, cause in the animals a mild discomfort. For example, by law now, when you separate an individual from the social group or more than 50 meters to do a test, that's you have to take it into account that that would create a mild discomfort. So in this case, you have to ask permission to do it. Because, uh, you know, and that's one of the things we worked at. Uh, and then we were present there when we discussed about how to evaluate projects, because the problem projects have to be evaluated by the competent authority who is experts to give permission. So what the parameters are going to be used, and uh, all the kind of stuff. So all the things related to the use of animals, especially primates, are when there are some decisions to be made to make more specific the law or to issue guidelines about how to better implement the law, uh, the European Federation of Primatologists, in my person, until I am still the general secretary, I think for many years now, is we are there to discuss. It's very important. Yes, absolutely. And it points to the importance of, you know, you and I would rather not see any animals in any experimentation yeah. if yeah. it could be helped, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, and at the, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge the fact that we have animals in experimentation right now. So, absolutely. That's, you know, and, and, and this cannot be separated. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I agree so much on this because sometimes I feel the debate about animal experimentation is so frustrating because the, the two opposition that I hate when they have the pro and cons. I just can't stand discussion polarized because animal experimentation is not something you get you have to be polarized about it. Okay, and, and I have the impression that you always think of, of possible future worlds, you know. Uh, possible future worlds where animals are not going to be used, possible future world where still have to use animals. And in this endless discussion, we completely forget about animals are used now and need our attention now. Now we need attention. I tell you an anecdote that really one of the striking moments as well. I went once for uh, give a consultation about the dismissal of some macaques used for research, okay? And they were fighting to find a new place for these macaques. And there were two oppositions group fighting at it. One wanted to, uh, let's say, animalist, so I don't like this term very much, want these macaques to go to their center, and another pro-science, uh, another thing that I hate, wanted to go to another center. And we went out to see these macaques. And I was looking at the cages. The cages was very bare. The, uh, the macaques couldn't go on anywhere. They would have to go around the perimeter of the top of the cage. It was not a bloody rich, was nothing there. And I can hear on my back these people discussing without even looking at the animals. So the moral of this is if you get into this polarized discussion, the animals get forgotten. They forgot, they forgot the animals. 
you know, I get into, you know, getting heavily involved into a debate. It was a debate, a, a sorry story about macaques used in the uh, uh, scientific research. And more and more and more and more you go, you can realize that the people were opposing, they were following a political agenda and they didn't care about the animals. They didn't care about the animals, you know. And this is because there is a big confusion about two terms, animal rights, animal welfare. Animal rights are a set of ethical problems related to the use of animals to our own good. We eat them, we raise them for, for killing them to eat them, we, we, we use it in the lab, use it as pets, companion, whatever. That's a set of problems. Then there is a problem of animal welfare, which when we decide that it's morally okay to use animal for our own good, and I think it's okay, how is the best way to use it, ethically speaking, to respect the right to have a decent level of welfare? If you make a confusion between the two, you don't go nowhere. So if you say, you know, macaques has to be go through this particularly positive training process to work properly in this project. And the other hand, uh, uh, I'm not interested in discussing that because macaques should not be used full stop. Well, we haven't solved any problems at all, nothing, you're stuck. So you really have to be, you know, what are we talking about? Yes, absolutely. And with this podcast, you'll find some links about, you know, these different aspects and perspectives, lenses through which we explore what we ought to be doing for animals. And we will also, of course, you know, just like with any other of the content that we do, we, and like I gave you the, the example of yeah. personality yeah. earlier today, we will also have some links on, you know, like the the physics, the, the physicians committee uh, on, you know, ethical experimentation of animals or for responsible medicine yeah. and how they talk yeah. about, you know, yeah. how do we move away from animal use to human relevant methods. And we will also have links to, you know, the NC3Rs where you can learn about, you know, yeah. that's our next topic. Great, great, great place in yeah. concluding for this podcast about you know what sort of principles should be used when we are trying to yeah. improve the lives of animals that today are in these positions and hopefully you know we can reduce or eliminate Absolutely. Absolutely. you know yeah. forwards yeah. but yeah. like yeah. you yeah. say importance is really and so when i am in a in a conversation with people with different backgrounds yeah. and different perspectives the question needs to be, like you say, what, why are we here? What is our common purpose? And if the, our common purpose needs to be what is in the best interest of the animal, not our political, um, yeah. you know, or any other ideology, what, what is in the best interest of the animal? And that allows us then to focus on finding the best solution yeah. so that the animals don't get forgotten. Um, that's exactly, really exactly. Don't forget the animals. No. You can have your opinion, you can be in favor or against, whatever, but don't forget the animals. Yeah. So, and, and that also, you know, the not forgetting of the animals is something that we need to hold if we want to progress, right? Because we can, at the same time, you know, provide enrichment and so yeah. on. And as you say, we have to continue doing the research to see Hmm. Did we get comfortable? Did we forget the animals in our our being yeah, comfortable? Yeah. You know, how do we stay dynamic? So, and yeah, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's the other important thing. You know, I say I'm an activist. You know, the, the, the we are all activists for trying to make things better. You know, an activist is all is somebody who stands for something, who's trying to make changes for something, and yeah. not only yeah. working against. Uh, so we all can be activists in our fields uh, for making changes for animals. Yeah. Augusto, could you take us a little bit through the three R's principle yeah. conclusion of this podcast? Yes, yes. Okay, the three R principle it was uh, proposed in 1959 by two uh, researchers, uh, William Russell and Rex Barch. And the uh, background of the principle was uh, from inspired by a great maker, Charles Hume, uh, who was the president of University Federation for Animal Welfare. And he thought, he perceived a gap between the, the world of lab technicians using animals and what he called the humanistic view of animals, in which animals are not just like petri dish or uh, test tube, but they are animals we have, uh, they have interest, interest in their welfare, interest in not suffering if it's not necessary. So he thought there was need to a new approach would put together these two words and use uh, as William Russell, who was a, a PhD from in zoology from Oxford, to work at it. And Russell was the great guy to do it because he has, again, a very multidisciplinary approach. He was interested in anthropology, philosophy, sociology, and so and so. So he was the right person to do that. So what happened is that they created this, uh, they, they published this book called the Principles of Humane Experimental Techniques in which they proposed this recipe, methodological recipe of the three R. So when you approach an experiment with an animal, you have to ask yourself three questions. Is it possible to replace the use of a, this animal with a non-sentient material? You know, uh, is it possible to reduce the number of animals used in that particular experiment? And is it possible to refine methodology in order to limit sufferings as much as possible? Russell and Barch aim was to avoid unnecessary suffering, you know, to create, to use the animalism in a more humanitarian way, you know, and so always to find new ways to do this. And that goes into the dynamic uh, uh, idea that you put forward just a minute ago. The three R principle is a dynamic uh, thing. Uh, Criticism of the three R principles say, will be obsolete is old. I disagree firmly about this because Sir Russell and Batch were able to create a framework in which you can still work. You know, refinement. Today we have methods of refinement uh, that we can use because the technology has gone on. You know, for example, the, if you talk about macaques using neuroscientific research, the, the kind of implants we use today are so biocompatible that some just few years ago was not even thinkable. That's a way of refinement. The way we do training for the animals to participate in experiments, because now we know better about the behavior, is a way of refinement and replace it even more so. If we, get, if we have now an organ on the chip, uh, the 3D model of organs, uh, in vitro uh, sophisticated method that can gradually reduce and replace the use of animals because the technology has advanced and we can use the technological advance within the framework of the three R. You know? And this is 
good and it's great. The three R are now integral part of the normative, the European normative animal experiments. You know, uh, uh, researchers are required by law to know what the true principle is and to apply the to your principle. Of course, on the other side, we still have to go a long way to do, uh, to, to educate or do courses to you, uh, young researchers and also old researchers about what the, the 3R is. And, uh, and, uh, and again, there is a, fortunately, smaller and smaller fraction of uh, colleagues that think that 3R is a sort of a, obstacles to do research, which is completely opposite, completely the opposite, you know, Russell Dijbat knew that very well. I really advise people to read the book because the book is a very uh, elegant English for someone like me who doesn't speak English, but it's a very elegant book, very clever and very elegant. William Russell and Rex March, who was his assistant, really had that vision that Charles Hume wanted. And that vision has to be with us still still has to be with us. We always have to find a way to replace, reduce, and refine. We have to continue to do that. When I evaluate projects, I don't like, now we have some experience with my colleagues on evaluating projects, and I don't like when I have the feeling that the researcher intent, the three-hour principle, just like a snapshot of what's going on. I want to see a real effort in trying to ameliorate things. Because going back to what we said just before, good animals, happy animals with good data. That's, you know, a dogma. Absolutely. Well, your English is great, so nothing to say about that. And I think also, you know, going back to your, actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with having obstacles. It's actually really good that you have to go, like you say, through it, and you have to show in depth yeah. that you have done the maximum effort, you know, going through those hoops and, and showing what it is that you could be doing differently. And also, we talk, it takes us back to the beginning when we talked about stats, stats and working with statistics. Yeah, yeah. You know, reducing the number of animals has really helped. Uh, status, stats has really helped in Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, you know? So, yeah. again, like you said, this, this multidisciplinary approach, everybody in their expertise, thinking along the lines, and this will never we're never exonerated. We will always, no. like you say, we have to keep using it. And um, I, I think, you know, together with Dr. Mickey Jerris in at the- Oh, I do it. Yeah, at Open Great Hippie. guy, great yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. We, have, uh, we have submitted uh, a paper actually on the three R's for zoos and aquariums. So oh, yes. We are waiting for our review uh, yeah, to come yeah, back, yeah, but yeah. it is applicable uh, in different ways in different disciplines, in different fields. Yeah. It's not just, we think it's not just, uh, you know, relevant yeah. to ex experimental research. Yeah, it's because a it's a very powerful there. framework. Yeah. That's what it is. It's yeah. a very yeah. powerful ideas. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are the big ideas. That's what we need. Big ideas. If there are big ideas and good ideas, you can, this idea can evolve with the time. Yes. Technology, our understanding, and these are big ideas. You know, the idea of altruism is a great idea. Animals are altruistic. The way we discover more and more and more is just carry on this big idea, the big intuition that, that, that you know, the ornithologist had. These are big ideas. Yes. You have to be thankful about this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Augusto, for this really interesting and very important podcast 
especially we want to put the spotlight on yeah. invisible animals, on okay. structures and aspects that, that all I, need attention. And I so, want to finish, yeah, I want to finish with another doctor that uh, yeah, another, say, yeah, you know, it's you, something that is really dear to me because you talk about love at a certain point, you know? Yeah. And uh, the idea is that, you know, you have to be rational in science and there's no space for feelings. And I just don't like that. Well, once I was working with, when I was, uh, uh, after my university at the time working with capuchins, okay, at the Elisabetta Lisabergi lab. And uh, I worked there for a couple of years, beautiful animals and fantastic animals, much more friendly than Barbazet. Barbazet don't like humans very much, but capuchins adore humans. And uh, one, the boss of the group was a great, call, great guy called Camello. Camello was a male capuchin. And I worked for him here and there. It was, I didn't think it was his favorite or anything. Well, um, after many years, I mean, I tell you, I'm quite considerable, I went back to see the capuchins, and I was sitting there in the cage, and all of a sudden, Camello rushed through a hill, running towards me and embraced me and started to groom me, grooming me. And I was shocked. Everybody around me was shocked. He never did anything like nobody before. And he was grooming me, he was doing soft sounds, and that struck me. At the moment, it was a lightning bomb, boom. I said, this is not just about collecting data. There's something much more about this, much more, you know? And I, you know, I know exactly, you know what I mean, you know? This is not just about collecting data. There is much more at stake, you know? I don't know why Camelo did so, but that embrace just opened me a complete, universe to look at what it is studying animals absolutely beautiful beautiful story resonates with me because i've yeah. had experiences with animals that maybe moved somewhere i know yeah. that of my friends and colleagues have these experiences and yeah. it's beautiful yeah. it's about our connection with the animals and at the same time as you say it is this opening of yeah. now what does it what are they thinking about are yeah. they are they could they could they have been missing me? Have they been thinking about me? In the yeah. meantime? You know what Camelo did. What Camelo, yeah, what Camelo did was trying yeah. at that point was trying to fill that gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was trying to fill that gap at that time. And I was honored he was doing it with me. Yeah. But what he did was that he was shortening that gap, you know. Yeah. And it's yeah. that sort of also musings. Are we willing to instead of maybe you know taking the more simplest explanation uh, yeah, simplest <laughs> are we willing to muse yeah. that you know animals could you know uh be experiencing many of the same things that we have yeah. now yeah. we comfortable being uncomfortable in that space right excellent yeah, yeah. excellent thank you so much thank you thank you thank yeah. you very much yeah i really okay. enjoyed it and I can't wait to have you back on a podcast or a webinar. Whenever. See you again. <laughs> yeah. In, in okay. Thursday. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye.